0: It's Wednesday Wonders, science fiction and fantasy on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG 13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult.
1: The Leviathan Chronicles, an audio adventure. The story thus far. A dark shadow has fallen over the rebellion. After being rescued in Alaska, McCallan and Tully remained in India after being briefed by Sedgwick as to the origins of immortality on Earth. He tells them the story of Evangeline Leifric and how she befriended two injured aliens from the planet Sorax 1,000 years ago who used their advanced technology to alter Evangeline's DNA and grant her the powers of an immortal. But while McCallan and Tully believed they had found refuge in Mumbai under the protection of Sedgwick and the Rebellion, a brutal attack was launched by the Black Door Group against them. Jason Sterling and deranged scientist Dr. Peter Marcane created mutated super beings by combining nuclear and Starstone radiation contained within the lost US Navy submarine, Dakota. These beings, These Enforcers stood almost 12 feet tall and possessed supernatural strength. Jason Sterling was able to link his mind to theirs and control them like robotic soldiers. But McKellen and Tully were able to blind the Enforcers for long enough for the Rebellion to launch a counter-strike to destroy them. The enforcer's death was vicious enough that it caused a feedback signal to shoot directly to Jason Sterling, thus disfiguring and maiming him. But the victory was not without cost. The rebellion's secret base in Mumbai has been discovered and must now be dismantled. Tully is growing despondent over the lack of progress in finding his best friend, Oberlin St. Clair. And both McCallan and Tully were badly injured in the enforcer attack. Worst of all, the brave Othello was killed while trying to save Macallan from one of the Enforcers. But a glimmer of hope remains for the Rebellion. A tooth filling from when the Enforcers were still human was discovered in the remains. Curiously, the filling is constructed of an advanced obsidian ceramic alloy. The only place that someone could produce the alloy other than an immortal is at Nankatsu Industries in Japan. And now, chapter 12, The Devil You Know. At the bottom of the Marianas Trench, at over 35,000 feet under the ocean, a small clear globe protruded halfway out of the side of the canyon wall and glowed with soft yellow light. Inside the small globe, a tall woman with auburn hair stood motionless, peering outward. A slightly shorter man covered in a white robe and white hood that obscured his face approached silently behind her.
2: You know you shouldn't have the signal shield open.
1: I'll take the risk.
2: I'm sure you will. But you could also be allowing the rogue Starstone signal to enter the confines of Leviathan and kill us all. Is that a risk you would take as well?
3: There's something I want to see.
2: And what would that be? We're 35,000 feet underwater in the darkest and most remote place on Earth. I'm afraid there's nothing to see, Evangeline.
3: Then I want to see the emptiness.
2: Ah, that would be the two chief engineers that have recalibrated the signal shield. They said you asked them for a status report.
1: Send them in. A middle-aged man and woman entered the room wearing Kelly Green overalls and carrying equipment satchels. They approached Evangeline reverently. However, upon glancing at the man in the white hood, the two stepped slightly away from him. The man in overalls spoke first.
4: My lady, uh, we've just replaced the used daxonite with the fresh rods from our storage supply.
1: Good. Have you recalibrated your readings? Yes, ma'am. Since we've installed the new rods, the Daxonite has absorbed all of the ambient radiation from the rogue Starstone. I can't find any detection of its damaging signal within the confines of Leviathan City. We're safe for now, ma'am. For now? Uh, yes,
4: Viceroy. This recent installation represents the last of our Daxonite supplies.
1: How has your research progressed? Regrettably, I have no good news to report. Based on our findings, Daxonite seems to be the only substance on Earth capable of absorbing a Starstone signal. When these new Daxonite rods are exhausted, we will be defenseless and open to the deadly effects of the malfunctioning Starstone. We will find another supply.
2: Perhaps we could manufacture another supply of Daxonite. We've used the power of our starstones to produce astonishing materials, strong enough to withstand the pressure, even here at the bottom of the-
3: Perhaps you forget, Bennu. The reason we are in this predicament is because the power supply in our existing starstones is almost depleted. We requested another starstone from Sorax. That is the one that is
1: currently malfunctioning.
2: Of course, my lady. Forgive me.
1: Ma'am, some of the other citizens, well, friends of mine, are worried. We've been isolated here in Leviathan for quite some time. We love our work and we revere the Eden Initiative, but this incident with the Starstone malfunction has us worried. Of
3: course it does. And steps are already being taken to correct the situation. Be assured of that. Your work is very important to Leviathan and you can't let yourself be distracted from the tasks at hand. I need you to continue to monitor the Daxonite and make sure that no radiation from the outside is allowed to penetrate in the confines of Leviathan. This place is our haven, our safety from the rest of the world, and it will remain so, I promise you.
1: The woman smiled and seemed to take comfort from Evangeline's assurances. She and her counterpart turned and left the room.
2: Promising a bit more than we can deliver, aren't we?
3: These walls have protected us for a thousand years. We have nothing to fear. The Chinese must have had some sort of accident that occurred in their handling of the Starstone. Unless,
2: of course, the Starstone malfunction was not an accident.
3: Oh, come now. This is the first Starstone malfunction in over a thousand years. If the possibility of intentionally manipulating a Starstone existed, I think we would have known about it by now. I hardly believe it could be used as a weapon.
2: I merely suggest that we examine all the possibilities.
3: I think you're paranoid. Still, something very dangerous is lying out there in the darkness. Something our enemies are controlling.
2: Which ones?
3: Fair point. But even you must admit that there could be some advantages to the crisis we face.
2: As always, your wisdom is lost on me. Please enlighten me as to what benefits have been manifested by our existence being threatened.
3: The gift of information, of course. We'll see what Censhin has up his sleeve. I have a feeling his hand will be forced before ours.
1: Back in Mumbai, spirits were low in the rebel base. People rushed about hurriedly, dismantling equipment and carrying boxes out of the base. Tully had been given proper quarters where he could shower and finally change out of the fuzzy pink sweater that McAllen had given him days ago. Despite the frenzy in the compound, nobody had seen Anton leave his room for 48 hours. He was devastated by the loss of his best friend, Othello, and has sequestered himself from all other distractions. McAllen too, stood in Sedgwick's private quarters watching him cook.
5: It helps with the immortality, you know. The cooking. It provides a ritual which gives meaning to the passing of time.
6: How long did you know him?
5: Othello? About 200 years. He was one of the first to join us. To join the rebellion that Senjun started. I'll admit, I had my doubts at first. It seems hard to believe, but Evangeline is powerfully charismatic and very compelling in her logic. She firmly believes that the Eden Initiative is the path to salvation for mankind and that, as immortals, it was our destiny to save humanity. I was pursuing chemistry at the time and was surrounded by the best minds on the planet. We want it for nothing. Back then, I thought that Leviathan would be the most pleasant place to spend eternity. But, as always, things change, and soon more and more of my research was being directed towards creating concoctions to be used for truth serums and untraceable poisons, Evangeline started using a small military strike force to influence events on the surface. Many in the Leviathan community knew that Evangeline was using some of the power that came with immortality for less than honorable means. But for many, they had been away from mankind so long that mortality governing their affairs seemed distant. I remember Othello telling me that being immortal was dangerous, that we would cling too closely to the idea of living forever, that the fear of dying would consume us, so that our lives would become solely the pursuit of preserving our precious lifespans.
6: I'm worried about Anton. No one's seen him for days, he's just holed up in his room.
5: You would be too if you lost your brother. Brother? Well of sorts. It all began in 1854 during the beginning of the Crimean War. Anton's father, Lord Becquerel, had been dispatched to serve as a lieutenant major under the Earl of Cardigan. He met with the village chief, Escobar Antonovich, to convince him to use his connections with the Russian army to spy and relay information. Lord Becquerel gave Escobar medical supplies and easily tradable goods so that they would not have to rely on the opium trade. Escobar proved an adept spy and lived the dangerous life of a double agent for over two years. But the Russians soon grew suspicious. The Tsar unleashed his dreaded black Mongol regiment of barbarians upon Escobar's village. The only survivor was Escobar's youngest son, Othello. Lord Bakaruk took the orphaned Othello with him when he returned to England and raised him as his own son. Soon his bride bore him his own son. That he named Anton. He raised Anton and Othello as brothers and they looked after each other their entire lives. They were as close as true brothers could ever hope to be. I can feel that part of Anton's soul has died. Othello used to say that immortality only gave us the illusion of permanence.
6: They knew each other and were family for over a hundred and fifty years. It's hard for me to get my head around that. I mean, I've had some friendships from high school that are 15 years old. And I've known you and Anna for 30 years, but 150 years. I can't imagine how painful this must be for you and Anton.
5: I hope you will never have to feel it, Macallan. That is why it is so important that we win this war and you fulfill your destiny to reset the Star Stone.
6: I love you, Sedgwick.
5: I love you too, Macallan. And although I am not your father... I have always thought of you as my daughter, a daughter of whom I could not be more proud.
6: Sedgwick,
7: about
5: my father, how
7: did he- Attention team, this is Please assemble in the conference room right away.
5: Come. I'm anxious to see what Senshun has been able to find.
1: McAllen and Sedgwick walked down a corridor where they met Anton. His face was pale and wet, and he looked weak on his feet. Anton, are you...? I'm fine. McAllen, Anton, Sedgwick and Tully shuffled into a conference room, where the far side of the wall was dominated by a large video monitor. Senshun stepped into view.
7: Good morning. Let me start by saying how sorry I am that we couldn't save Othello. He was a soldier, a visionary a very good friend. He believed in our cause and he gave his life to defend it. Anton, I know how deeply this loss affects you.
1: Anton said nothing and stared blankly ahead, stone-faced.
7: But this war doesn't give us the luxury of a mourning period. Black Door sent those monsters to kill Macallan. We've learned that they have somehow obtained access to a star stone or at least something that behaves very much like it. We need to understand how that's possible and more importantly, what they intend to do with it. The only clue that we've managed to obtain is a tooth filling that we've tied to Nankatsu Industries, one of the most advanced techno-industrial conglomerates on Earth right now. Those monsters that killed Othello appear to have been human once, before they were mutated. My guess is that before their gene sequence was altered, they must have spent some period of time in one of Nankatsu's advanced materials laboratories, perhaps as employees or test subjects. Whatever work is being conducted there must link to the Black Door Group's activities and their attacks on the Immortals. Where
5: exactly are these facilities? How do we know which one is linked to the Enforcers?
7: (sighs) We don't. Nankatsu is headquartered in Tokyo, but they often utilize remote satellite branches for research and development. They usually choose locations that are governed by magistrates that are easily bought or intimidated. This allows them to conduct experiments that might be considered environmentally or morally unsound. Very little is known about the exact operations conducted within these facilities. Their security and precautions have been among the most advanced that we've seen from any government, military, or otherwise. However, we do know the locations of three of the secret laboratories that Nankatsu operates for their research and advanced materials. One is in Chimbote, deep in the Peruvian side of the Amazon rainforest. The second is in the Gobi Desert, near Alunbatar. Now the last one might be our target. Onkatsu Industries has been running a skunkworks lab on the remote island of Nishinoshima. It's a small island that lies a thousand kilometers south of mainland Japan. Its isolated location is perfectly suited for Nankatsu's need for secrecy. But the other
8: laboratories sound pretty remote as well. I mean, why Nishimoshima over the other laboratories?
7: The tooth filling we found was comprised of an unusual composite containing obsidian. If manipulated at the atomic level, it can act as a very powerful bonding agent for other, harder minerals, thus creating an alloy that is virtually impenetrable.
8: The total is worth more than the sum of its parts?
7: Precisely. Obsidian is a rare substance and typically only found in areas of geological instability, like fault lines. Nishinoshima lies in an isolated chain of volcanic islands near Japan.
8: We need to launch an infiltration mission. If we can get inside the laboratory, we could access their mainframe and search the databanks to determine what Black Door is doing. If they have any connection to this deadly signal that's been killing our people, we have to make them pay.
5: I share your anger, Anton. But revenge is an indulgence we cannot allow ourselves. I do agree that we should launch a strike team to infiltrate their labs. This could be the best lead we have received yet. Oberlin mentioned that one of the guys shooting at us back in Homer was speaking Japanese. Maybe these
0: guys have information on where they're holding Oberlin. If he's still alive. He is alive.
7: Gentlemen, we're all on the same team, but I think we're ignoring the obvious. Infiltrating Nankatsu Industries won't be as simple as knocking over a liquor store. We're talking about one of the most sophisticated technology companies on the planet, and this is one of their most secure facilities. Their defenses will be considerable.
8: Our technology is superior to say nothing of our training. But look
7: at where we are. The Dharavi facility you're sitting in is no longer operational. Our computer systems are down. We can't provide tactical support for a mission of this complexity. Sutton Manor isn't set up to administrate a covert strike either.
5: Then we'll need to outsource the assistance we require. We'll need someone who has experience in infiltration and can extract a protected target.
8: Someone for whom breaking and entering are not- No, I won't do it, Sentient. I won't work with him. When Othello died, I became Chief of Tactical Operations. This is my call, and I'm telling you that he is incapable or trustworthy, and will betray us to Evangeline and the Eden as if the right price is offered to him. I won't. I
7: think you're letting your emotions get in the way. A mercenary to the highest bidder he is, but even you must give respect to his capabilities. He's proven himself to be an asset to our Rebellion on many occasions where And he's been
8: an enemy too! He switches sides whenever the mood or price strikes his fancy. He was back on Evangeline's payroll in the early 1900s. He has no loyalty or honor.
6: Can somebody please tell me who the hell we're talking about?
8: A very dangerous immortal. He's a mercenary, a hacker, a traitor, a cat burglar, an assassin, a spy,
5: as well as a thief. He is a man with many skills that offers his services to the highest bidder. Unfortunately, he does have a reputation for often playing both sides of a conflict when it serves his purposes.
0: Does this elusive man of mystery have a name? Of course he does. Harlequin.
1: Three days later, after intense planning... McAllen, Tully and Anton left Mumbai for London to meet the infamous Harlequin. Anton seemed slightly more animated now that a mission was at hand, but he was quick to anger when McAllen again insisted that Tully join them in London. Anton relented after grumbling that Tully had been privy to too much classified information already to be allowed to go free. A chauffeured black and silver Maybach 62S pulled up to the curb at Gatwick Airport to meet McAllen, Tully and Anton. The two men bumped into each other while they each reached to open the door for Macallan.
6: <laughs> Thanks boys, but I'm a big girl and I can open my own doors.
1: But when she pulled on the handle, she noticed the door felt much heavier and opened much slower than she expected.
6: Must be an armored limousine. Are we really in that much danger? Is this the life of an immortal? Always protected. Always hiding.
1: Once inside, the rich Connolly leather seemed to envelop her when she sat in one of the large bench seats that faced each other. Two LCD screens displayed BBC News and CNBC, while a third offered internet access. Anton climbed inside next, followed by Tully, a chilled bottle of crude grass. And Cuvée Brut Champagne sat in a burled wood container within one of the armrests. McCallum was tempted to indulge in a glass but ultimately dissuaded herself when she remembered that it was nine in the morning here in London and that someone was trying to kill her.
6: I still don't understand. Who exactly is this harlequin?
8: Harlequin is the only immortal in existence to have broken free of Evangeline's grip and not align himself with our rebellion. He operates as an independent mercenary, offering his prodigious services to the highest bidder, no matter whom that might be. He defiantly broke away from Leviathan several centuries ago to indulge himself in a more hedonistic lifestyle. Evangeline tried to have him killed, and when she failed, she promptly spread rumors that he had died of natural causes. But, eventually news filtered down from the surface that not only was he still alive, but thriving, using his wealth to obtain tools and training to provide a myriad of dark services to whomever could afford him. His professional record is littered with assassinations, spy work, sabotage, and of course high-level theft. He's incredibly rich, even by immortal standards, and has developed quite a penchant for the finer things in life. He's adapted remarkably well to modern times, and now specializes in stealing information through hacking computer systems and invasive surveillance. Last I'd heard, he'd been indulging himself in cat burglary and art theft out of boredom between assignments. So, I don't get it. Is he part of the Rebellion, or one of the Edeners? Neither. He's provided services for both sides in the past. And as loath as I am to admit it, he has been a valuable resource in our journey for independence. Of course, he's also been a liability as well and has reported sensitive information about our operation to Evangeline. He plays us both against each other and we all know it.
6: And then how does he survive? If he's broken free of Evangeline, then how does he get his reinfusion of Starstone energy to perpetuate his immortality?
8: By threatening to leak information that she is entrusted to him against her. He does a great deal of work for the Edeners as well as us. Having such a capable agent on the surface while Evangeline and the rest of the Edeners lie hidden from the world within Leviathan can have its advantages. He's more used to her alive than dead, and Harlequin knows that.
0: Wait a second, isn't that what your rebellion is all about? This guy has the answers. Don't you guys want to be free from Evangeline,
8: too? Maybe you should... Not for the price he was willing to pay. Look, it seems we've almost arrived.
1: The Maybach pulled up to the Sanderson Hotel on Berners Street in Soho, and several doormen hurried to unload the baggage in the trunk.
8: I have some business to attend to this afternoon, so I'll have the car pick you up at 7.30 this evening. I suggest you use the time to get some rest and get yourselves properly ready for this evening. If suspicions are correct, we'll be meeting Harlequin this evening at the Tate Modern Annual Breast Cancer Benefit. The dress is black tie. In case you're unaware, Mr. Tully, that requires you wear a tuxedo with a white shirt that tucks into your trousers? Piss off. I've worn a tux before. He lied. And Macallan, after you've had a chance to freshen up, have the hotel car take you to Bond Street in Knightsbridge. Why? You'll need to buy a dress, of course. (laughs)
1: The plan was to intercept Harlequin at the annual breast cancer benefit at the Tate Modern, one of London's poshest museums. All of the luminaries in British film and society would be in attendance, and given Harlequin's predilection for the finer things in life, Anton was betting that he would be there as well. Giant floodlights illuminated the sides of the enormous building, while dancing high beams were reflected off the cloudy sky above. Once the Maybach crossed Blackfriars Bridge, traffic came to a halt as the endless procession of other limousines continued as they discharged their privileged passengers into this exhibition of celebrity and wealth. Once they had finally approached the entrance to the gala, McAllen swung one leg outside the limousine and felt her Stella McCartney dress slide dangerously up her thigh. She could see the flashbulbs of the paparazzi exploding along the entranceway to the Cape Modern Museum, spilling onto the red carpet. The camera flashes were blinding, but before she knew it, Anton was standing next to her, holding her arm gently. He looked dashing, and standing next to him, she realized for the first time how tall he was.
6: He must be at least 6'4". Must be some sort of immortal trait. Total hottie in that tux. Speaking of tux, I
1: wonder where- Tully adjusted the cuffs on his newly purchased Zenya tuxedo, which McAllen had generously purchased for him earlier in the day.
0: Excuse me, would you please? Yes, I have a ticket. I said I'm with them, just let me through. Get your man paws off me, Sasquatch.
1: He was about to take Macallan's right arm, but was thwarted by Anton grabbing it first. Tully stared back at Anton defiantly, and without taking his eyes off him, stepped around Anton, and gently locked arms on Macallan's left side.
0: I believe the lady deserves two men to escort her through the door. Wouldn't you agree, Anton?
8: I guess that depends on your definition.
1: And there McAllen stood, at the foot of the red carpet with a hundred photographers eagerly snapping photos of the tall, slender woman with auburn hair, accompanied by two attractive men that stood by her side. She felt beautiful and better about herself than she had in weeks. She was immortal. The three walked down the red carpet and entered Turbine Hall, the main lobby within the Tate Modern. Tully kept blinking his eyes hard to get the burn of the flashbulbs to dissolve from them. The hall was packed with beautiful people. Women in alluring evening gowns clinked champagne flutes with men in tuxedos, while a DJ group spun the latest trance music from Amsterdam. Anton, there must be a thousand people here. Do you know what Harlequin looks like? How are you going to be able to find him?
8: I can already sense him.
1: The three of them walked over to the section highlighting the museum's latest acquisitions. A handsome young man with tousled black hair stood admiring a painting by Louise Bourgeois.
8: You know why I'm here, Harlequin. This needn't be a long discussion.
1: The man remained motionless. Only the women on his arm moved as if they were swaying to an unheard rhythm. And then, as if responding to a mental cue, the women quickly left his side and busied themselves by the bar.
4: Of course I know why you're here. The question is how did you know where to find me? Oh, that wasn't too hard. Maybe I knew that
8: you couldn't resist looking at a painting you stole from the Museum of Modern Art in New York 20 years ago. Or maybe I'm in the market to hire someone to perform a computer hack into a database containing the location of every immortal that is part of the rebellion against Evangeline and the Edenists, so that they can be assassinated in their sleep. Or maybe... As
4: usual, I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about. Well, it seems that lately
8: jewel heists and stolen art haven't been holding your interest, have they, Harlequin? It's information that seems to be the focus of your purvy, isn't it? Tell me, is treachery more palatable from behind a keyboard than on the front line?
1: The man called Harlequin finally turned to face Anton and then glanced at Macallan.
4: Ah, Anton. Charming till the last. And you brought a pet with you. How enchanting. I'm no one's pet, and I have a name. Of course you do. It's Macallan Orsell, isn't it? You are supposed to be our key, aren't you? The key that has been rumored all around Leviathan. A key to unlock Starstone should Evangeline ever fall ill.
8: This isn't one of your games, Quinn. It gives me no pleasure to say this, but we need your help. It's an infiltration and reconnaissance job. High security, heavy technology. One of the toughest we've ever seen. We both know that thievery, for lack of a more elegant term, is your speciality. In fact, you're the best in the world. This time, the prize is information. We believe Blackdoor may have knowledge of the rogue Starstone that's been killing us. We have to break into this laboratory and find out everything they know about Starstone technology and Leviathan.
4: Forgive me, Anton, but I really don't feel I have the inclination.
1: He started to walk away, but Anton grabbed his arm.
8: Harlequin, you don't seem to understand what's at stake. If you don't help us find it, you'll die too. Do you really think I care?
1: Harlequin yanked his arm back from Anton's grip.
6: I care. You may not, but I really do. I don't want to die. And I certainly don't want my friends to die. Your friends?
4: Is that what you think they are? Friends? The Rebellion? My dear, they are merely using you to save their own lives and accomplish their own political goals. What have they ever done for you? Oh, let me guess. They gave you a large sum of money. Harlequin. large sum of money, seemingly from nowhere, for doing nothing. Millions, I'm sure. Who was your generous patron, Macallan? Was it saint or perhaps Sedgwick? I hope you realize, my dear, that the giving of money comes as easy as breathing to an immortal. The one thing you learn during the course of eternity is that human loyalties are notoriously cheap.
6: I'm no longer human.
4: No. No, of course you're not. You're the messiah, aren't you? The youngest immortal on the planet. The rook to topple over Queen Evangeline, aren't you? Or is porn the correct piece? I forget- I'm
6: not a messiah. I'm just- Make no
4: mistake. Greatness will be thrust upon you, whether you wish it or not. And what about you, Anton? Do you want to die, or is immortality treating you too nicely? You like the clothes, the cars, and the mansions, that money... I see you
8: like your own share of comforts.
4: Yes. Hedonism does suit me rather well. I hear Sension has you flying the Condor now. Isn't that a nice piece of stolen loot? You guys stole the condor? Long story. And where is is Sen Shun hiding these days?
8: You know I won't tell you that. The mythical Sutton Manor? I won't tell you. Hidden
4: somewhere in New York, I've come to understand.
8: Have you felt the signal strike? Does your mind want to explode? I'll bet you have felt it, Harlequin. How much time do you imagine you have?
4: Longer than you, Anton.
6: Hey, guys. We're here to do a mission. Harlequin, we need you to help us find the broken star stone. We believe... The key to finding it is in a laboratory on a remote island off of Japan's coast. We need help infiltrating the facility.
4: We've got to find the rogue Starstone. Of course you do, but you're not asking the right question. And what is that? Who lost the Starstone in the first place?
1: Harlequin smiled coyly at Macallan and then stared back at Anton. The two sensual women that were by Harlequin's side earlier returned, bringing him a glass of his favorite, Paul Roger champagne. He leisurely finished the glass, occasionally holding it up to the light, staring intently at it as if the decision of whether or not to aid the rebellion was contained within its bubbles.
9: Ah.
1: Frustrated, Anton knew this game, and he had to stand there submissively while Harlequin held the empty glass high above his head and allowed the last few drops to fall into his open mouth.
4: I'll let you know tomorrow. In the meantime, please do be a good man and get lost. I intend to enjoy the remainder of my evening without the distraction of... solicitation.
1: Anton stared back intently at Harlequin, about to challenge him, but then promptly turned on his heel and stormed out of the museum. Tully couldn't help but smile as they followed him out
6: the door. What are you smiling about, Tully? If Harlequin doesn't help us, we're literally dead in the water. Are you kidding me? I love this
0: guy. Him helping us is in the bag.
6: Oh, yeah? And what makes you so sure?
2: Because our
0: Harlequin likes pissing off Anton even more than I do.
1: The next day, Tully, Macallan, and Anton awoke in their suites at the Sanderson and found invitations engraved by hand lying on their beds. The invitations read,
5: The presence of your company will be kindly tolerated at the personal residence of the one and only Harlequin at high noon today. Please be on time
8: fucking arsehole.
5: Hi,
1: Noon. (laughs) What a guy. The Maybach limousine dropped Macallan, Tully and Anton off at an exquisite mansionette located in Hyde Park Gardens.
8: Pretty sweet pad. One of his many cherished residences.
2: Good afternoon. Mr Harlequin is expecting you in the study.
1: The three of them followed a portly butler through a marble foyer that housed a wide, winding staircase that led up over five stories. Harlequin's study was on the third floor. When they entered it, McAllen's eye was immediately drawn to the windows, which overlooked Hyde Park. But Anton had no patience for indulgent architecture and walked straight over to Harlequin, who was stationed behind a large, polished oak campaign desk with several computer monitors recessed into the room.
8: What's your answer,
6: Harlequin?
1: Harlequin gestured towards the sofa by the window, but Anton firmly stood his ground.
6: Please, Harlequin. We're trying to save lives. Not just our own, but others. My nana. Amelia Orso. I'm sure you know her. If I can
4: save her- SAVE LIVES? Are you sure you've allied yourself with the right cause, McAllen? Have you asked Anton how many lives they've saved versus how many they've killed? Have they told you- This that? is no time
8: for a subjective history lesson. Just yes or no.
1: Tully spoke for the first time since entering the room with McCallan and Anton.
8: Actually, I would like to hear about it, if that's
0: okay.
1: Ah. Mr.
4: Tully, is it? I assume you're a companion of Miss Orsel. Anton wouldn't lower himself to associate with mere mortals. You see, Mr Tully, the world began to change 70 years ago. Like little termites, mankind began to stick his fingers into even the most remote areas of the earth. We immortals had enjoyed a reasonably separate existence from the rest of mankind for hundreds of years. Years that were well spent pursuing accomplishments of science you could only dream of. We are left alone peacefully to pursue our own visions of enlightenment without the constant interruptions of the politics of man and the endless squabbles over money or a few miles of precious land or whose god is a better god. It was a renaissance. But 70 years ago, the world started to become a smaller place. Information was being shared at a global level and the glorious fragmentation of man's society began to meld itself together so that communication was becoming more coordinated across the globe. The transfer of knowledge was becoming more seamless and world's borders began to quietly dissolve. We were, in short, running out of hiding places. That's what I don't understand. Why do you guys need to hide so badly? Because of the endless fascination and jealousy of mankind, nobody wants to die, Mr. Tully and to have wealthy individuals among them that are exempt from the sacred rules of nature and death would inflame mankind to the point of our extermination or worse, our examination. Today, progress is racing ahead exponentially. The human genome has been decoded. What if someone were able to unlock the secret that lay within the Leviathan genes? What would happen to the world? Think of it. The population stands at 6.6 billion currently. Without death, that number would double with 50 years, and then even faster as man would never be able to resist the call of reproduction. Or is room for just one more, as long as it's my child. The planet would be exhausted of resources in under 300 years, which I understand may seem like a lot to you, but for my immortal brethren, it's just a long summer. So what exactly happened 70 years ago? Didn't you tell them, Anton? No, I suppose some chapters of history are better left buried, aren't they? You see, Macallan, for the better part of the last thousand years, Evangeline's dream of the Eden Initiative was being fulfilled. One of the first applications of the Starstone power that was gifted to her by her alien benefactors was the ability to create advanced materials that were stronger and lighter, possessing properties that mankind had never dreamed of. This has always been the core of our immortal technology. So Evangeline created a fortress, deep. So very deep under the ocean where no one on earth could find her. Well, her and her loyal subjects, the Edeners. We were all Edeners at one time, you see. Evangeline collected us like butterflies in a jar. The best painters, soldiers, the most brilliant engineers and scientists. She seduced us all with the promise of wealth and freedom and a community of like-minded geniuses. We would go to a place where our every desire would be met and every resource needed to advance our field of study would be procured. The ultimate patronage. And in fairness to Evangeline, she delivered what she promised. We were given extraordinary wealth to distribute to our friends and family as well as pad our own accounts. Shortly thereafter, we were whisked away to this underwater fortress called Leviathan to conduct the greatest science the world has ever known. But as the centuries passed, the fortress became a community, a small city of several thousand. Of course, once you became a member of Leviathan, contact with the surface world became infrequent, All travel through the keyhole network was governed by Evangeline, and Leviathan citizens found their access to children and loved ones being increasingly restricted. Security was the reason most often given, and there was obviously some truth to that, as mankind became more sophisticated in its detection methods. Quite soon, it was not lost upon the inhabitants of Leviathan that fewer of the new members were scholars or artisans but rather soldiers and assassins. Evangeline's relationship with mortal affairs on the surface became more caustic, and her methods more severe. As political parties grew that were in opposition to her tenets of the Eden Initiative, Evangeline found it too cumbersome to deploy the usual methods of bribery and trade to affect her desires. Rather, she soon found herself resorting to murder and intimidation. Leviathan members were asked to work on projects that were blatantly nefarious. Our hidden tribe of pacifists were being asked to kill in order to preserve that peace. Then one day, An impetuous young immortal named Senshin, maybe only 200 years old, explains to Evangeline that he no longer believes in the tenets of the Eden Initiative. He believes that the benefits of our incredible knowledge and advances in medicine should be shared with mankind, not hoarded away deep under the ocean. Evangeline insisted that her path was the only path that science and enlightenment was allowed to continue to grow unfettered from the contamination that mankind's ambitious hunger radiated. She did not believe mankind to be ready to accept the gifts that she had spent her lifetime and the lifetime of the other Edeners accumulating. Mankind was still too primitive, too warlike. It wasn't ready for the pearls of immortal wisdom to be bestowed upon them. After lobbying Evangeline for decades to allow more freedom for the members of Leviathan to travel to the surface and to have more say in the government of Leviathan, Senshin secretly recruited a few hundred of the Edeners to form a rebellion to overthrow Evangeline. Without the ability to convert a starstone into the cellular energy it needed to maintain our immortality, Evangeline would lose all of her power. So, Senshin, along with other scientists within the rebellion, created a powerful retrovirus, one that was genetically engineered to deactivate Evangeline's genes and transform her back into a mere mortal. Of course, this would mean a death sentence for every immortal, but Senshin was always an extremist. Better to die free than live as a slave to Evangeline. Not that he gave anyone else much choice in the matter. But Evangeline, through her spies, learned of this plot and so she created a device. A transformative device that would reawaken her Leviathan genes if they were forced into dormancy by Sension's virus. This device was powered by a tiny bit of Starstone energy that could have been detected by the Rebellion. So she hid the device within one of the keyholes that we use to travel through normal space to different points on Earth. She had this device constructed back on the surface so that nobody within Leviathan could find and destroy this new defense mechanism Evangeline had created for herself. When the device was completed, it was loaded onto a shipping vessel called the Cedar Elm, but the other secret was that a new substance had been discovered, called Daxanite, that was the only substance known that could block the powerful radiation of a star stone. And it just so happened that the Cedar Elm was carrying a large supply of Daxanite to trade with in Hawaii. Two days after heading out of Vancouver, Evangeline ordered the ship destroyed so that it, along with her precious safety device, lay safely at the bottom of the ocean surrounded by Daxonite, to hide it. That's
0: why the Cedar Realm shipwreck kept moving around. Evangeline must have been moving the shipwreck underwater so that nobody would ever find it. She couldn't remove the sarcophagus from the body of the shipwreck because the Starstone radiation would alert the Rebellion to its presence. Precisely.
4: So the Cedar Elm lay at the bottom of the ocean like a safety deposit box waiting patiently for Evangeline to make a withdrawal. Unfortunately, the Cedar Elm's complements of 65 crew members were killed in its establishment. But as I'm sure you'll learn, McAllen, a human life is a small price to pay in the pursuit of an immortal's agenda. Isn't that right, Anton? You have no right Getting back to our story. Senshun and his merry band of rebels released their toxic retrovirus. But of course, You know what they say about the best laid plans. One night in April over 70 years ago, the Rebellion put their full plan into effect by hacking the security codes to a portion of the secret Leviathan bank accounts and moved trillions of dollars into countless unnamed accounts in private banks across the world. They loaded matching sets of keyholes as well as valuable scientific data files into loading drones that met the Condor on the surface. The Rebellion took control of the Condor, the most advanced vehicle on the planet and stole away with their priceless booty in untraceable style. Before the Rebellion left Leviathan, Evangeline's private chambers were flooded with gas that contained the retrovirus. But in the firefight that ensued as the Rebels attempted to secede from Leviathan, Evangeline's chambers were damaged, thus leaking the retrovirus into the general population before Evangeline could ever be exposed to it. While the virus was custom designed to alter Evangeline's genetic code, to anybody else the virus would be lethal. Thousands were killed. Over half of the immortal population died. It was our holocaust. And Leviathan became a death zone. Anton might not tell you this, but for most of the Leviathan population, being immortal makes you fear death more. After a few hundred years of being immortal, many forgot what death was, how painful it could be, how permanent the loss.
8: It was never proven that the retrovirus was the cause of death. Oh, please you. Will you help us? Yes or no, Harlequin?
4: The answer is yes, Anton. I'll agree to help you break into this secret lab of yours, but only under three conditions. One, this mission is under my command. Everyone on the team reports to me, including you, Anton. Second, I want Mr. Tully here to be part of the mission. And thirdly, I want a moment alone with McAllen. Do you agree to my terms? What? How can you- Do you agree to my terms?
1: Anton stared back at Harlequin, and then over to Macallan to make sure that she was all right with being alone with him. She nodded slightly. Fine.
8: I agree to your terms, Harlequin, but you'd better be as good as you think you are.
4: A pleasure, as always, doing business with you and the Rebellion. Now, if you'd please excuse us.
1: Harlequin gestured towards the door, and Anton and Tully both reluctantly exited the study. After a moment, Harlequin arose from behind his desk and walked over to McAllen. He looked into her eyes and smiled genuinely at her. He walked her over to the window overlooking Hyde Park, from their vantage point on the third floor. They could see hundreds of people in the park, running, walking, eating lunch, cutting through to Kensington, playing with dogs, hailing cabs, and generally enjoying the beautiful expansiveness of the park. McAllen smiled ironically and wondered if her life would ever be that normal, that pedestrian again. Her smile quickly faded when she saw a strangely familiar elderly couple staring at her from Hyde Park. People were moving all around the old couple, yet seemed to take no notice of them. The hairs on McAllen's arms stood up as she realized that they weren't staring at Harlequin's exquisite mansionette. Both the old man and the old woman were staring directly at McAllen. She was about to say something when Harlequin spoke first.
4: You are a god among those around you. Look at them. They work and toil and never have time to reach even a fraction of their potential. It is cruel, no doubt. But that need not be your fate. Do not choose to live like one.
6: Just because I'm no longer human doesn't mean I'm not part of humanity. You'll
4: lose that naivety sooner or later. It usually takes a century or two when everyone you've loved has died. When nothing in this world stays the same or is as you remember it when every trace of your former life, your human life, has been swept away by change. Then, only then, will you embrace what you are and begin your life anew, unfettered by the moral scriptures that you hold so dear now. Time will no longer be an enemy, but an ally. I could save you great pain, Macallan. What if I offered you a chance to join me? Doing what? Harlequin, what are you- Macallan, let me ask you this. What makes you think you'll survive contact with the Starstone? Because Evangeline lives- You're not Evangeline. And maybe it's a trap! What do you mean? Evangeline knows they'll send you to turn it off. Have you considered that it could be booby-trapped by her to kill her competition, mainly you? Sension would sacrifice you too easily, I think. Don't you see? This is who the immortals you revere so much really are. Oh, they'll have you believe that they saunter through Earth's history on a higher mission of scientific and cultural enlightenment. The intellectual elites hovering above humanity's depraved consciousness. But in reality, they are all just bloodthirsty soldiers fighting one side against the other in a war that is just as barbaric as the ones that they would choose to condemn by mankind. They are hypocrites, McAllen, and they will use you. I think you might be the hypocrite,
6: Harlequin. At least they believe in something. Othello believed in something and made no excuses for his use of violence to protect the people he loves. You sit here in your mansion and try to profess that you're above it all, above the immortals and their war, yet you are precisely the one who profits from it, playing one side against the other. You're not above it. You are exactly in the middle of it. And that makes you the hypocrite.
4: Your passion is refreshing but antiquated.
6: May I ask you another question? Of course. Why did you agree to have Tully
4: join us? Quite simply, two reasons. One, it pisses Anton off. And two, a good chess master always wants another pawn to sacrifice, if necessary.
1: You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles by Christoph Leputka. For more episodes and information, log on to www.leviathanchronicles.com.
7: Hello, everyone. This is Christoph, your author, your creator of The Leviathan Chronicles. It feels so good to be back, and you're saying, "I know, Christoph, where have you been? Where was episode 12?" I know it took a little bit longer, and the funny part is, I'm always signing off saying, "I will see you in 10," and not only do I have an awesome, rocking fan base, but also a very polite one because no one's gone out of the way to point out to me, uh, "Christoph, it's been a little longer than 10 days." I know, and. The reason for that, and the reason why episode twelve took a little bit longer to put out, is really about themes. I said in the soapbox of chapter eleven that that was really kind of a breakthrough episode because it was one where we took the most chances. We wanted to create a full-on action sequence in an audio drama, and to really give a very visceral sense of a pace of action and atmosphere uh, in a way that you would typically see in an action movie. And that was really something that a lot of people hadn't done in in that context of audio drama before. Chapter 12 is a little different, as you can tell. The, the action isn't as intense, but what I really wanted the focus of Chapter 12 to be was music. We wanted to play around with a lot of very modern themes in music. And some of my biggest problems with some of the earlier audio dramas, while I love them, is they sound wonky. You have big, wonky organ music when it's revealed, that but the butler killed the heiress. And we wanted to do something that was much more contemporary, the music that we're listening to now. Edgy, modern rock music we wanted that to infuse the scene to infuse the atmosphere because i want to put you in a place where you believe where you know that leviathan is happening around you and to do that we really need to capture a much more contemporary feel than i think a lot of the audio dramas of uh of the past have done and music is something that doesn't lend itself to a tight time frame Chapter 11 was a little bit easier from the standpoint that when Robin Shore, who works here at Silver Sound, and I are sitting, going through the sound editing process, we can say, hey, that explosion's not right. Different explosion. Nine millimeter gun, put in a minigun. I need a 357." It, it's much more scientific in terms of how we design the, the soundscape. But music is different, and I actually don't come from a musical background. So one of the struggles that we have here is me trying to articulate what my vision for the music should be. And, and I'm, not, I'm not trained in any instruments. I don't play any instruments. So a lot of times trying to find the right sound is a lot of trial and error. But when you're trying to add music to an episode, it, it tends to be something that you can't rush. And there's a lot more experimentation into really trying to capture the sound and the timing, and that takes a little bit longer. And I think one of the things that makes Leviathan different is, again, that focus on music. We're not using canned music. We're not uh, downloading... Uh, a downloading stuff off the internet to use. All the music you're listening to was originally created for Leviathan and we've got uh there's a musician named Eric Czar who has done an incredible job in this chapter and in other chapters in terms of designing the soundscape and really capturing this modern feel that we think makes leviathan so different so i hope you're you're listening that and you're hearing that i'd love to hear the feedback if you're digging the music or if it's something that you're you're appreciating but it's not really you're not distinguishing it like hey christoph like the music sounded like normal music it's not that great or if it's like hey it sounded really great i'd love to have the soundtrack to to leviathan let us know that so moving on update of last week In one of the last soapboxes I did, I talked about Merle Lafferty, podcaster, author extraordinaire. She rocks, and she put out a novel called Playing for Keeps that she put out first in podcast form. And you can check that out at www.playingforkeepsnovel.com. And she subscribed to this new podcasting novel model that we've talked about where she wrote her novel, she podcasted it, gave it away for free, and then got a book deal And her book went on sale on Amazon.com on August 25th. And what she asked all of her listeners and supporters to do was to buy that book to create this giant purchasing spike at Amazon on August 25th. So again, not buying the 24th, not buying the 26th. Let's get everybody involved buying the book that day. And the result is mer kicked total ass. By the end of the day... Playing for Keeps had gotten to number 16 on Amazon. Not sci-fi, not a number 16 on Amazon. That rocks. That is a great example of new media taking on old media. And that's what this is all about. I'm so excited for Mur because If one wins, we all win. And I'm hoping when eventually Leviathan goes into an audiobook format that we can duplicate something similar to that. I want this to be one of the best-selling audiobooks when Leviathan finally goes in that direction, probably towards the end of this year, beginning of next year. But this was a great job from Mer Lafferty. I'm so psyched for her. Her work is so terrific. And I really encourage you to listen to some of her other podcasts that she has. She has one called I Should Be Writing. It's for wannabe fiction writers by a wannabe fiction writer, which of course is a misnomer because now she is no longer a wannabe fiction writer, but is an actual ass-kicking Amazon ranking writer. So if you enjoy writing fiction, if you consider yourself an author, I think it's a great resource because she walks you through the publishing process, the process of submitting articles, of dealing with agents, dealing with copyright issues. It's really informative. I've learned a lot from it. And if you go to iTunes and look it up under I Should Be Writing from Mer Lafferty, you should see that there. But once again, her novel, www.playingforkeepsnovel.com. Check it out. Mer is awesome. And I know that I have been a very lax pod god by not keeping my show notes as current as I should be. That's changing. If you guys go, if you look at the show notes, which are under the surface section of the website, www.leviathanchronicles.com, all these links that I'm talking about, I'll have listed out so you guys can follow up pretty clearly. Now, I want to get to one of the most exciting things that I have to share, and that is a new website called echofiction.com. Oh my God, am I incredibly excited about this. A really cool guy named Xander Davis started a website called Echo Fiction that just launched a few weeks ago, and I'm incredibly honored and psyched that he asked the Leviathan Chronicles to be a part of of his web project. And the project is this. He wanted to create a, a portal and a web destination for contemporary modern audio drama, and Xander is also affiliated with another company that is responsible for producing some of the content, but he's also a, a portal for other audio dramas like Leviathan Chronicles, like the Byron Chronicles, like Infidel a number of other really, really, really cool audio dramas, in addition to having some of the classic audio dramas that are out there. Some of Jack Benny, Mel Blanc, really interesting vintage stuff as well. So if you're liking what you're hearing here, and you can see a little bit of historical perspective of what audio drama used to be, and now what we're doing with it now, it's an awesome website. It's a great resource. I am so incredibly psyched for Xander, for not only putting this together, but asking Leviathan to be a part of it. Again, that website is www.echofiction.com. And one of the shows that Xander put up was one called Soul Rift. This blew me away. Instead of explaining to you the whole plot of Soul Rift, Xander's actually given us permission to play the first scene in... In Soul Rift. We don't have a promo, but we're gonna actually be playing the very first scene that takes place I think it's dynamite. I think you guys are gonna really enjoy it. This is Soul Rift
3: Excuse me
9: we have a dress code here.
3: Yeah.
9: Black lace
2: and PVC. The suit you got on won't do, chick.
3: What about my badge?
2: Detective Alice Walker. What the hell is OCI doing here? Our
3: eye in the sky caught a glimpse of some activity going down right here.
2: There's a lot of activity going down here. You know where you are?
3: The Black Omen Club.
2: That's right. It's an S&M circus beyond this gate. most exclusive one here in DC. So don't bother applying for a membership, all right?
3: I've got a warrant. Open the gate. Detective, Roger says Z-axis
2: reading takes you to the basement.
3: Copy that. Uh-huh. You, what's your name?
2: Let's say it's Fever. All right,
3: Fever, take us in. We need to get to the basement. Who's we? My partner and
2: I. So do I have to wait for him?
3: Trust me, he's with us.
9: This way. You enjoying the sights, honey? (laughs) 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 Here we are. Basement door.
3: It says VIP.
9: That's right. You ready for this?
3: What do you mean?
9: think it's shocking up here? Wait till you see what's beyond this door. <laughs> Let's
3: go. Open the door.
9: Well, welcome to the underworld.
3: What goes on down here?
9: I'm not telling you anything.
3: I count six doors.
9: They're sweets.
2: So what? You want to see what's behind door number one? I don't have to.
7: EVP sanscook, auto-scan and search enabled, and running. Copy. What
9: is that sound? Tuning in my partner. Tuning into your partner?
0: Alice, I'm
3: here. Here we go.
2: Your partner is a ghost? What? <laughs> I thought I'd seen everything.
3: Coming from you, I'm sure that means a lot. The
0: dynamic of pain and pleasure in the space. It feeds On life and death This is a haven Your voice poetic Wait
3: here, sir What has happened here, Spectre?
0: There's some kind of trace I can sense it Which door? This one To the right You sure? Is your containment gun I will pass through this door and tell you whether or not to open it. Hey,
9: what's going Sir, on? Stand back. You
0: ready? Yes. I'm passing through the door and into the suite. Tonight. I'm in. It's dark in here. Blood is everywhere, especially pooled on the floor.
3: You got a body?
0: hanging from the ceiling bound by the wrists and throat in metal chains her entire body is wrapped in chains her? this girl.
3: what happened to her?
0: yeah she clearly wanted to be dominated and that's exactly what she got
3: how can you tell?
0: Her life from her flesh was not all that was taken. Her soul. It was pulled out of her eyes. i him in. Bed. Wait. What's this? She has something strapped to her back. and turning her around. What? Alice. Evacuate the club.
9: Now! Let's go. Hey, what's going on? move! fire alarm what the hell is going on fire alarm what fire alarm i can't hear you where is the fire alarm the damn damn oh shit hey, what's going on a lot
3: of people are still in
7: That was awesome. You've just listened to the first scene of Soul Rift by Xander Davis. You can check it and other amazingly cool audio dramas like the Leviathan Chronicles at www.echofiction.com. In checking it out, you all have a mission. I want you to go to Xander's website. I want you to go to echofiction.com. And in the forum, I want you to vote for Leviathan. They're giving out awards for the best audio dramas, and I want you guys to support Leviathan. Go to EchoFiction.com, vote for Leviathan. Let's claim that award, which we all know is rightfully mine. I need you, you need me, let's get it. Okay, one of the last things I want to talk about, this is, a, uh, this is a little glimpse into my personal life, was my trip to the dentist. And, and I'm bringing this up only because some of you were incredibly kind and sent me a bunch of emails when I put on my Facebook page that I was going to see the dentist. And for those of you that know me, I have something of an adrenaline addiction. Don't have a lot of fear issues. Paragliding through the clouds south of France, no problem. Motorcycle racing, No problem. Scuba diving on shipwrecks? We all know I like that. Roller coasters, thrill rides, even eating the gross sushi at my deli over on 48th Street. No fear whatsoever. However, the one thing that does instill the fear of God that has me shaking like a schoolgirl who just lost her toy panda is the dentist. Just it, just everything about it. I don't know what it is, but sitting in that chair and hearing those god-awful sounds in your mouth. Ooh, God, I just can't stand it. So the good news is my old dentist retired and I have a new dentist and he is like the Klaus von Bülow of, of dentists. And by that, I mean, I step in there and he starts giving me volume like they're Tic Tacs. After about five minutes, the volume's kicking in, I go, I sit in the chair, boom, hits me up with nitrous gas. Oh my god. I start lolling my head back like I'm in some peyote-infused, absinthe-soaked hallucination of a spiritual vision quest where I saw Leviathan breaking out into old media, new media, Getting distributed all over the internet into people's iPods, into people's bookshelves—it was the best dream I've had in years. And the guy actually had to shake me a couple times, and 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 literally, it was one of those things, like one of those rock concert fantasies, where like everyone's like, like you're on stage, and 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 all the girls are like ripping your shirt off, and it's really awesome. And he's like, Kristoff, 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 to like get me out of this playboy mansion state of consciousness that my mind had dissolved into but the good news is didn't feel a thing and by the way like just to tell you what a wuss i am this wasn't like some like surgical root canal i think we were just like cleaning and doing a fluoride treatment that i needed like this level of of anesthetic assistance in but i i gotta tell you this is great i may get my teeth cleaned again next week who knows this was a great trip my dentist good guy So, again, wrapping up, the theme of Chapter 12 is about music. One of the most important elements of the Leviathan music is our theme song. The theme song that you hear in the beginning of the episodes and also the song that you hear in the beginning and end of The Soapbox. And that is by the band that we know and love. ATW against the wall. I saw them a couple weeks ago at the Knitting Factory down in Tribeca. They put on a great set. It's awesome. And as we fade out, I want to play one of their latest songs, one of my favorite other new latest songs called Nights in December. And I really hope you guys enjoy it. This is ATW. Alright, that was ATW, Nights in December, and you should definitely check out their MySpace page. They're at myspace.com slash Band. You can also get their link on the show notes or in the crew section of the website. That's all I've got for the soapbox for now. Once again, I want to thank all of you for being fans of Leviathan. It means so much. You guys have been spreading the word. Please keep using Twitter. That has been unbelievably successful. Keep telling people on Facebook. Leviathan is growing. We just broke 10,000 downloads. I'm incredibly psyched about that. We have almost 500 subscribers. We need to keep that momentum growing. This is a revolution that I want you to take part in. Putting new content in people's iPod. It's not just about music. It's about sound effects. It's about music. It's about audio drama. I am out of here. Thank you guys so much again. Chapter 13 will be coming soon, and I will see you guys for sure this time in 10.
0: Sweet Sue has been tied to the railroad tracks. Will our hero save her? Well, of course! The hero always prevails on Thriller Thursdays! I'm John Bell, the hero that rarely prevails in Bells in the Bat Free, the comedy show you can hear every Friday Follies, and a bunch of Sunday showcases. Help. Oops, looks like the hero may have been a tad late there.